Hello and welcome to another episode of the Athletic Perspective Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Jorgensen, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Stephanie Burek-Iggers, as well as an awesome guest, Gemma Sheehan. So Gemma is a former MMA fighter. For her, fighting was going great. She had a record of 5-1 and one with four wins in the first round, a gold medal at the Pan Am Games in Jiu-Jitsu, and she was ranked the best fighter in Ontario. Additionally, she was nominated as the best up-and-coming fighter internationally. Now, all of this changed when Gemma suffered a serious head injury, which led to her retiring from the sport. But what she did was she started a program. This program is called Girls Who Fight, and what she does is she works with girls of all ages and teaches them MMA and self-defense in classes and workshops all around the greater Toronto area. She has found a way to transfer this passion she had for the sport beyond competition. So today we're going to chat with Gemma about her athletic journey, what it was like to retire from a sport that she had dedicated so much time to, and how she was able to transition to life after the sport. Now, before we get started, I just want to mention, if you're enjoying these podcasts, give us a like on Facebook, give us a follow on Instagram, subscribe to the podcast on all your major podcast providers. You can also find more content on our website, athleticperspective.com. This is an episode that you will not want to miss, so let's go. So do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? So yeah, my name is Gemma Sheehan. Uh, all of that is true. When I was around 14, I started training in kickboxing and then a bit of jujitsu after that, a bit of wrestling. And then before I knew it, by the end of high school, all I wanted to do was be like the best MMA fighter in the UFC. And I pursued that all throughout high school and university and a bit after until I essentially found out I had like visible brain damage that was problematic (laughs) and I decided to stop fighting and I started my program called Girls Who Fight about two years ago and it's just been very very rewarding ever ever since. Awesome. Yeah and we're super happy to have you here on the podcast. So today uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about MMA, women in contact and combat sports, uh, retirement from sports, as well as uh, safety in sports and and the programs that you run, Girls Who Fight. So really excited to get into that. Um, Yeah, so do you want to just start by uh, explaining to the listeners, for those who might not know exactly what MMA is, uh, just give maybe a brief little overview? Yeah, uh, MMA is mixed martial arts. So essentially, um, the UFC kind of took MMA and made it popular, and they said... Any fighter can come to our um, our fights, our, our shows, and use whatever martial arts that they want. And we're going to see which martial arts are the most superior. Um, so people came originally with like karate, like only karate, only so it was like jujitsu versus karate or kickboxing versus right, like right. taekwondo. And over time, uh, people kind of 
came to a consensus about what martial arts were most effective for really winning a fight. And that kind of boiled down to striking, so like kickboxing, mm -hmm. um, boxing, uh, wrestling, so how to take somebody from standing up to on the ground if you need to, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which deals with everything on the ground. So if you're on your back and someone's on top of you, how can you get them off? How can you submit them? How can you control positions on the ground? Um, so it's a very like holistic like mix of fighting that is most applicable to realistic fighting or self-defense situations. Right, right. And so in that way, it sort of blends all those different disciplines uh, yeah. together. Yeah, you could... You, you could Anyone could go into a UFC right UFC fight and use something they learned from Taekwondo or Kung Fu or anything, but because the sport is at such a high level now and the stakes are so high and athletes are competing for so much money and um, obviously they all they're all trying to get to the top, they only really have time to train in, in the most effective sports. And that even comes down to like in jujitsu there's gi jujitsu and no gi. Gi is like if you think of someone doing karate, that white um, like suit that they wear kind oh, okay. of thing with the belt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a gi. But both of them are Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But because in the UFC there's no gi, people don't really have time or like the privilege to train in, in gi because they're, your energy spend is so limited and important that you need to only be training in the things that are most effective. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to kickboxing, wrestling, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu for most people. Right. And so you mentioned... You know that that energy expenditure. So, how many rounds is uh, like a, a MMA fight or UFC fight then? In in the UFC, there's some some most fights are three five minute rounds, and for title fights, so if you're trying to if it's like for a championship belt, it's five five minute rounds. Okay. In amateur, which is where I did, where I was where I was competing, it's three. Sometimes there's three three minute rounds. Sometimes three five minute rounds. It really depends on the organization. Right. Um, but yeah, usually three, five or three minute rounds. And what do those 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 five minute rounds feel like? Do they feel like five minutes? Um, hmm. <laughs> I feel like they feel they feel like an hour and like twenty seconds at the same time somehow. But it's like I feel like the first round is always the most shocking, and that's the same with anything I've competed in, like wrestling or jujitsu as well. Like the first round you have so much like nerves and so much almost anxiety like physical anxiety going in but after the first round you kind of realize that it's okay like you've you've been in this situation before even in the gym I think when people at least with me and I've heard this from other fighters when they go for a fight there's almost like a mental thing where you think that person is going to surprise you with something that you've never trained for or like I don't right. know they're going to be so much stronger or so much bigger but they end up just really being like people you train with every day and I feel like after the first round you you kind of realize that and you get you you release a lot of the nerves and so the last couple of rounds are um a bit easier although harder because you're way more tired right if that makes sense yeah yeah so, <laughs> yeah so you start to like settle in mentally yeah uh, yeah 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 Although you are drained. Yeah, and point. like everything physically is harder, but you're not like freaking out in your head as much. You're like, okay, I, I can do this. Right. And so going through that, how how do you come out winning a fight? Or I guess maybe explain to us too how the winner's determined. Yeah, okay. So fights 
can be won a couple ways. One is by decision or a split decision. That basically means nobody got a knockout or a submission. No one ended the fight, but the judges um, judged that one person was dominating the other person. So if if it's obvious that one person was backing up the whole time, they were getting way more beat up, they basically judge it off of points. Um, so judges are like, yeah. like calculating points for who's getting hit the most, who's controlling the ring. If you're, like I said, if you're always backing up, that's a point against you because you're not controlling the situation. Um, other ways of winning would be submission. So like if you armbar someone or choke someone and they tap, meaning they surrender, that's a win or a knockout. So if you hit someone and they get knocked out, then the fight is over. Yeah. Uh, or a technical knockout. If you you're hitting someone but they don't get knocked out, but the person is like not really defending themselves well, and the ref decides to step in and say, you know what, this is over. Those are the ways that you can win a fight. So with your fights, could you take take us through what the decision were? <clears throat> yeah. On those? The first fight I had, I lost by armbar. So that was in Ont- that was in Montreal and. I um, was with this girl, and she put me in an armbar. There wasn't even, like, a tap, but the Ontario has a reputation for being very, very, like, cautious with MMA. So they have, like, full gear. Even if they think you're going to get hurt, they'll stop the fight. Um, so that, that's how that fight ended. After that, um, I won every fight in the first round, except for the last fight I had, which I won by decision. So the fights that I won in the first round were by rear naked choke, um, technical knockout. So when I said when you're hitting someone and the ref stops. Yeah. Um, I think another another rear naked choke, another. I'm I'm having like trouble recollecting um, all the ways the ways that I've won fights. But the last fight that I had was decision. So that was like the hardest girl I ever faced. Meaning like she was most skilled. She was like really, 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 really physically strong, um, bigger than me, training with a really good team. At the time, she was training at the team of the UFC heavyweight like champion. So she had a lot of good trainers and people. Uh, and that fight went three rounds. And it was the only fight really where I got a lot of damage. Because every other fight ended in the first round and I didn't take many, much damage. Right. It was just way longer. Yeah, yeah, like different, but one round and three rounds, different. <laughs> yeah. So is that like a strategy? I mean, obviously you want to end it as fast yeah. as possible, but would there be like endurance fighters who who just try and drag it out one by points and stuff like that? Or I think most people would rather end the fight as quickly as they can, just mm-hmm. mainly for a couple of reasons. One, you're limiting, you're reducing your chances of losing. And of getting hurt if yeah. you win it quicker. Second of all, it's cooler than if you win by points over five rounds. Yeah. Um, yeah, you sound pretty cool when you're telling us that you've won every fight but one within the first round. That's amazing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Point exactly. <laughs> um, you never know. Like, there are always oddballs who, like, want to just scrap or fight or, I don't know, they... Sometimes fighters can be weird. Just do something <laughs> like, different for the sake of doing something different. Yeah, or yeah. there's people I know that like I've heard people say things like, "Oh, we're 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 strikers, so even if we could get the the uh, the submission, we're not going to because we're gonna like beat them up on the feet." To me, that's silly. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, like an ego. Yeah, block. especially from like the athlete's perspective, because 
if you're coaching your your students to take that approach, I feel like their health and safety is not at the forefront of your priorities, first of all. Mm. And second of all, it's not like if you have a submission right there and you don't take it just to prolong the fight a couple rounds to show that you can get more strikes against them than they can against you, you're also risking losing the fight. Right. Yeah. Like every loss is bad for your career. Um, it just doesn't make sense in any way except for that ego thing, which is like we're we're like tough strikers. Yeah. Um, we're gonna like we don't even need submissions. We're just gonna like stand and bang. And okay, so this Mike and I both played a collision sport, rugby. Okay. But in watching your fights, it is terrifying. Oh. Like how <laughs> you it is it is it is incredible. How how did you how did it all start? How did you get involved? Well, the simple answer is that when I was in grade 10, I moved into my mom's house and she lived across the street from a martial arts gym. And I wasn't really doing much outside of school at the time. But as a kid, I did a lot of a lot of stuff like dance, gymnastics, singing, acting, piano. Like I, I dabbled in lots of things, but I never stuck to anything and I never felt really good at anything mm -hmm. and then when I started kickboxing maybe it was as simple as being like one of few girls there that gave me that initial sense of I, I I've never even thought of it like that before just coming to my head of like feeling significant at something I feel like as a teenager is a really important thing because you're you're trying to figure out where what is special about you what's different and like where do you fit in and like what am I going to do with my life and where do I belong and I feel like uh, martial arts does in spades for a lot of people is that sense of community um, especially as an adult because as a teenager you have like your high school and like you see the same people all the time but when you're an adult unless you're willing unless you're gonna like schedule hangouts with your friends every week you're yeah. not going to like you just kind of so I guess you life like, gets busy yeah yeah so having um like a gym of people that you go to and you're all working towards the same skill and you're supportive of each other and people just want to hear about like oh what's up Gemma like what would you do like this week blah 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 I feel like that provides a lot of benefit anyways I think that that's something that mattered to me when I started and um I also when I was a kid I was like obsessed with spy stuff like I thought I, I thought I was gonna be a spy for CSIS when I was like eight <laughs> And I had like, I always had spy toys, like my parents were very encouraging and they still are of my spy. Like my dad still talks to me about how I should like mail CSIS a letter about how like great I would be because I shouldn't apply online because then there's, it's like traceable. So he was like, he really wants it. He's like, you know, you should, you know what you're doing right now is cool and it's like, it's doing well, but you should think about like your long term um, plan because you're not going to be like young and energetic forever. So after that, you could be a spy. Your <laughs> <laughs> uh, dad's great. Yeah. That's no. awesome. Um, but yeah, I was really into it. I was really into like female warrior spy assassin type movies. Oh yeah. And like that's never changed. Like like X Men superhero stuff. And I whenever I saw stuff like that, I was like, I would be good at that. I could do that. Um, and then when I started training, I feel like it's kind of like set in to this idea of myself. And then from there, what tends to happen, I think, with young people that start training is you start showing up more and more, and all you are at that point is a ball of potential. Mm -hmm. And everyone can see that. 
So everyone's always encouraging you and being like, oh, like you're doing so good. Like, you know, you, you have a lot of potential here. Like you could be, you could take this really, really far. Come, come to train more, come to this gym, let's do this. Um, and then people start asking you when you're gonna fight. And even if you hadn't joined, people don't often join a martial arts gym thinking, I'm going to be a competitive fighter and go to the UFC. Mm. But through that process, I think of like having everybody around you tell you that you really have potential to be something great in this sport, you almost like, okay, yeah, I guess I, I guess I will have a fight. And then you have a fight, you win or you lose, but you, you kind of start that process. And that's what happened to me. And like a couple, maybe like a year of that. And then I was like, okay, um, I'm just going to be a UFC fighter. And then I just decided to dedicate everything to that. Wow. So I guess you kind of got introduced to the sport just because of the, the proximity of the gym. And then it, it kept you in there. It was that sort of sense of community. Yeah, honestly, um, I it was across my street from where I lived. And I started with kickboxing. And then there was, I feel like people, when I do interviews, people don't like to hear this part of the story because it contradicts with my like women's empowerment message. But there was a boy from my high school <laughs> who was a year older than me. And he was like the coolest guy in the school and like all the girls liked him. And, and he was doing jujitsu at my gym and I was doing kickboxing. And I had a huge crush on him. So I, I, start, I tried the jujitsu class and he ended up becoming like very, 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 very obsessed and very, um, very talented with mm-hmm. MMA because he was like the most dedicated in the gym person ever um and then seeing that encouraged me to kind of mimic it so I started showing up to the gym I started training and everything and the initial um motive was because I had a crush on him but then through that I like I realized oh like I'm actually pretty good at this and I could do this myself um so yeah that that also played a factor (laughs) (laughs) What, what's going through your mother's head watching you slowly get involved with this just so happens to be across the street from her house and now her daughter is is getting involved in what is first perceived as like um, a dangerous sport or can be? Both of my parents were always like super supportive of it. They were never overly worried. They never discouraged anything. Um, but also when I told them I was stopping fighting, they were also happy about that. Hmm. Would you let uh, Theo? I have got a two-year-old. You know, um, that's a good question. I'll support him in whatever he does. That's the answer you're supposed to say, right? (laughs) Yeah. Where did the nickname Smash come from? Um, I made it up. (laughs) Yeah, I I named myself. I wish I did. I wish I could say, like, I got the nickname from, like, some really cool, like, uh, and a trainer who was like, you should be smashed, <laughs> smash everyone. But really, it was because it kind of ru- it made sense with my name, like Gemma Smashian, like the alliteration. Right. Yeah. But also the way what I tried to do in my style of fighting was very much like I, I, I was always a leg up in terms of wrestling with other people. That's kind of where my specialty was, was taking people down and then like doing stuff on the ground so doing jujitsu um and that's kind of that like hulk smash thing where he like picks people up and slams them 
So that was kind of perfect for for me, um, like conceptually. Yeah. And the name worked with my my name, so I was just like, you know what? If no one's gonna give me a nickname, I'll give myself a nickname. <laughs> and I just decided it was Smash. It's a good nickname. Um, what I want you to do is to sort of set the stage uh, for the listener regarding the build up to one of your fights. Mm-hmm. So I want you to take us through everything about it, like what's going through your head. And give some context to the fight. Yeah. Um, yeah, like who, who you're fighting, when, why, uh, what was going on in, in the changer beforehand, you know, did you talk to your coaches before, what was your thought, like all the way up until, okay, start. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll go with my last fight, because it was definitely the most scary one. Um, so I was fighting a girl called Allison Ainley, and she was training at a team that was very, very good and had a lot of um, UFC fighters that were already at it. She was also a lot bigger than me. She had, so my weight division was 135 pounds. And I cut about maybe like seven pounds to get there. So I wasn't that much bigger than that. It's kind of a natural weight, weight class for me. However, before fighting me, she started at the 170 pound weight division. So she was much taller than me and much more thick muscle wise. And she had cut, like, I don't know how many pounds she cut, but a lot more than me. So she was bigger. And also, watching her fights before, I knew that she was just going to come and try to knock me out. So for me, that was always the scariest thing, because I don't, I've never liked getting hit. I don't know many people who like getting hit, but people at least try to deny that they care about it. But for me, I, that mentally was affecting me. So... The day of the fight, it was like October uh, 26th, 2015 or something. I remember, th- this was in Ohio, so we drove 10 hours to get there, me and a couple people from my team. Um, there's actually a whole documentary on this fight, because there's this videographer from my my gym called Danny Lau, who's doing amazing now, and he started by just like making his own documentaries of fighters like in this process of like the day of the fight, what they're doing before, like in the workout room. Um, anyways, I remember I saw her at the grocery store the night before, like I was at the grocery store doing my like, okay, what am I going to eat after I weigh in tomorrow? So you always buy way more food than you think <laughs> that you're actually going to eat because you're like, I haven't eaten carbs in like a month, so I'm going to eat that and that and that and that and that. Um, and I turn around and like this girl is like towering over me and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> Um, and that those moments are always kind of awkward when you enter the arena or whatever and you kind of spot your opponent across the room and they're with their team and they look super tough with their like cornrows and, and all that stuff. That's always a little bit. Did you guys say anything? Um, I, I don't think so. Maybe we said hi. Because it's very tense. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very tense when you're... Especially MMA, jujitsu is very, it's much more friendly. Mm. Like you could be like talking to someone before you go and compete. And then after you could be like, oh, hey, like that was, good job, man. Like see you next time. But when you're going to go and like fight somebody where you're going to try to really hurt them. Yeah. Not in like a, in like a mean way, but if you don't hurt them, they're going to hurt you. So you're trying to do your best to stop them in like the best way possible, which would be like hitting them so hard or um, submitting them. So that is like mentally for anyone. When you're around someone that you know you're gonna like go at like that, mm-hmm. it's it's very tense. Anyways, leading up to the fight, I was there with a 
a, a training partner called Tom, and he was we were training together for a long time, and we were the same size in the same weight division, so we were super good training partners together. And a couple fights before mine, he got knocked out by his opponent. So it was in the first round, and he got hit and knocked out cold. Like, he dropped. He didn't know where he was. He left, like, mm. leaving the ring. He was such a... He was, he was just a, a mess mentally, like, so sad and, like, shocked. And, and I was, like, watching this. Right. And that was um, scary. <laughs> but you can't really spend too much time because while this is happening with your, your friend and training partner, they're, like, you're up in two fights. So the boy that I mentioned, uh, his name was Sam. We ended up dating for, like, five years. And he was, like, very, very integral to my MMA career because he was always a training partner always uh like a a coach even putting mma together because he was very 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 talented and just like naturally athletic and he was always helping me so he was coaching me and i'm doing my little pad work and stuff in the little tiny waiting area and then you know that they're going to call out your name after the fight ends and it feels like it's like 10 minutes but it's really like maybe two and you just that that moment of waiting for your name to be called and like hearing your music is always for me like the most intense because it's like okay yeah this is happening like it's happening now it's about to happen and then they call your name and you walk out and then it just all kind of feels like going through the motions from there a little bit and it kind of almost flies by slowly (laughs) it's very very hard to explain um i can explain the feeling of being in the octagon like your your senses narrow mm-hmm. so it's super loud because everyone in the whole arena is screaming but it's like you don't even really hear much of it like it's kind of all blurred together your vision is just like totally focused on this one person who's trying to like kill you um and you just like 100 percent of your attention is solely on protecting yourself from this person and it's just very like in the moment like there's nothing else on on your mind Pure survival. Yeah, it's pure survival. <laughs> it's, it's primal. <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned your music. Yeah, um, I actually in that article I asked them not to like say it like that just because um, they said that I I chose a, a song about people screaming mm. like to scare people. I wasn't it wasn't to scare people. I just thought the song was really cool. Right. Um, it was it was a scream by Avenged Sevenfold. Oh, okay. Um, I just thought it was really intense, and I liked it. And I, I like I've liked that band for a long time. But yeah, picking a um a walking song is kind of like I don't know. There there's so many options, and people t- I feel like I tend to overthink it. But I felt like that suited my whole like persona. Cool. And how how much of it is um persona and how much of it is also to sort of put you into the mindset you want to be in when you enter into the octagon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of fighters do a lot of visualization stuff. Mm. So they say it helps to prepare for the mo it's very, very hard to really prepare for what it feels like walking into a fight in a huge arena. Um but they say the only way you can really do that is like a lot of visualization. So closing your eyes and picturing yourself going through those motions over and over again, like as things as simple as the walkout song, um, hearing them call your name, walking up, 
like they close the cage behind you, the ref is like every little step. So when you do it, it doesn't feel like it's the first time and this is crazy. It feels like you've kind of seen this before. Um, so that plays a role with the walkout song, I feel. Yeah, and I think that circles back to one of your previous points where, you know, you only have, you don't you don't fight very often. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, in, in someone's career, they, they might only have, say, 20, or what, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it's very low relative to, say, something like soccer or rugby mm-hmm. or yeah. something mm-hmm. like that. And, and so, you know, a skill like that, like being able to keep a good mindset going into a fight, is not something you'd be able to practice, no. you know? So yeah. I think that, yeah, that visualization piece is so interesting. Um, and you mentioned that the number of wins becomes so critical. And is that, do you feel like that's because of how short people's careers can be as, as a fighter or? Yeah, um, that's definitely a factor. Cause you know, as a fighter, you don't have forever. Your time is, is limited because fighters usually retire around like 35. Um, if you're kind of fighting over that age, I feel like there's a sense of like, that person has to be fighting like, yeah, yeah. because they have no other way of making an income or maybe right. they think they feel like it's the only thing that they that can make them feel like alive or meaningful or whatever but it's almost like sad to see mm. because it's so damaging to your health to do this sport for that long um and yeah the, the wins really matter for that because you're very limited and also like every fight takes another toll on your um your your health your brain health mm-hmm. so every time you get hit i think a someone told me that their coach talked about it like this like you have a 1000 hit capacity and every time you get hit it goes down one and that's like all that you have until you are basically mush mm-hmm. and uh, like it's that's kind of just like a hypothetical Right. Proposition, but yeah, it yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. puts the visualization of like people can't just take unlimited amount of, of brain damage. Yeah. Um, and that's a really big factor. So people, if you're gonna have a fight, you really want to take it very seriously and limit as much damage as possible and win. Um, it's also because it's so competitive now. There's so many people doing MMA, and there's so many really really good people. So. The more you lose, the less um, selling power you have for yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a big deal because if people stop hiring you, if you, if you don't become, if you lose your your selling appeal, then your career is going to be over. Right. And and what is the the culture around recovery uh, in terms of I guess partially in terms of um, head trauma, but also in terms of the rest of your body. Like in a sport that is all about pushing yourself past your limits continuously and for survival while you're in the octagon, when you step outside of it, what do what do the co- the coaches as well as the greater culture around it? How do they perceive recovery or time away? Or yeah, um, yeah. I think over the last couple of years, I've seen a a bigger trend in recovery and what people are calling like smart fighting instead mm. of hard fighting or or at least smart training. So there's a couple newer practices at least newer as, as far as I am aware of, um, like sparring without um, like gloves and headgear, but very, it's like touch sparring, so you're not really landing heavy shots just because, oh, I have gloves and I have headgear. 
Um, that's one one practice. But that being said, before the last couple years where people started talking about this and big fighters started to be like, actually, it's not cool and it's not good for you and it's not smart to just do hard sparring every single day and destroy your brain. Um, In practice. Yeah. Before yeah. that happened, there was not anyone really that I can remember, at least in my experience of my career, talking about... Um, talking about the, the risks of fighting. Mm -hmm. So like when I was growing up, nobody, everyone talked about the potential, the glamor, the, the money, the fame, everything that like a teenager wants. But nobody sits you down and says, everything has a consequence. And if you mm -hmm. think that MMA fighting doesn't, then not someone's not being honest with you mm -hmm. because there's big, really, really big consequences from MMA fighting. And I feel like young people, even though everyone has a responsibility to um, educate themselves at the end of the day, I think, but if you're a coach and you are only talking to your up and coming fighters about the glamor of fighting and not the responsibility and the risks involved and the consequences, I think you're being negligent. And I think that happens at most gyms I've, I've ever been at. Hmm. So I think now is a good time to transition. You wanted to share your experience of retiring from sport and just give yeah. a little bit more detail for the listener around that. Yeah. So uh, I, after we'll bring it back to that last fight I had, that was um, at the end of 2015. So I mentioned my Sam. He was the first initial <laughs> crush boy from the gym and uh <laughs> He had a brother called Spencer. Me, Sam, and Spencer were like a tight, very, very tight group that we trained every... So we we started at the same gym when we were young. Then when we left that gym, we trained at the same gym up until forever. Like, like until we all stopped fighting, really. We did that. We followed each other. We were like very, very close. Sam's brother, Spencer, was the best up-and-coming MMA fighter in Toronto. And everybody knew it. Like... Every gym wanted him at their gym. Everyone wanted to train with him. Everyone wanted pictures with him. Everyone wanted to give him sponsorships. Like, everyone was was on him. He was fighting all the time. He had all the opportunities, um, like fighting too much, honestly, like every other weekend at some points, every month at some points. Um, and a week after my fight, Spencer got knocked out in training. And so he got head kicked in training. And training is where most injuries happen. It's not really in fights. Like a lot of people do get injured bad in fights, especially if you get knocked out, but <clears throat> you fight way less than you train. You're training every right. day, six times a day and really hard. Mm -hmm. So that's where most of the injuries, especially like um, the the buildup, like every little hit that you get that builds up over right. time. Right. Just based on like athletic exposure. Yeah. Really, just because, yeah, I guess, yeah. So he got knocked out and it that was... Um, that was almost four years ago, and to this day, he has had the worst post-concussion syndrome I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I saw that very, very, like, up front, because I was at their house all the time. They were, <clears throat> we did stuff together. They were my best friends. So he wasn't not only not able to train uh, or fight, but he couldn't work or work out or do anything, and still, it, it's pretty much like that. It's a little bit better, but... It's really, really bad. It's it's um 
really, really changed his life. Um, and he was, I think, 19 or 20 when it happened. Um, so that was very, very hard to watch. And I got to see really behind the scenes how that totally ended a lot of the great things about his life. Um, anyway, so that's one part. About um, maybe six months after that, I got results back from the third MRI that I had done. And they said that I had something called white hyperintensities, which is essentially clusters of white matter in the back of my brain where they shouldn't be unless you're over 65 years old or have a degenerative disease like dementia or like MS or uh, some, some things like that. And they said that this is most likely because considering what your career is, is most likely from brain trauma um, and you should seriously stop. And I had, had, I've had so many doctors at that point up until then tell me I should stop fighting. Like you go to the doctor and you're like, oh, mm. my knee hurts. And they're like, well, that's because you have no cartilage in it. Um, have you ever thought of stopping MMA? And you're like, no. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, like you've had every injury. They're like, well, here's what you could do. You could stop fighting. And you're like, that's not going to happen. But then this one was so much more intense. And they were saying that even if I did keep going, there it was likely that the UFC would not let me compete because they do brain scans um, in their health evaluations. And what I had wasn't just a concussion because con concussions don't show up on a brain scan, but what I have does, and it's very abnormal. Like, it's apparently it's, it's super, super abnormal, in, especially in young people, but they do see it in a lot of boxers and football players and hockey players. And that's because there's a lot of brain trauma in that sport, in those sports. So that's what they told me. And I sent my MRI to like several different experts in white matter and I tried to learn everything I could about it and I was very much in denial at first like I didn't really tell anyone about it I didn't tell any of my trainers like I didn't tell them I was stopping fighting I didn't even know if I was gonna stop fighting I was actually still training for a fight at that at that point and luckily the girl that I was supposed to fight backed out and that's when I started to get time to think about it because it's just when you're a fighter, you never want to, like, there's like a, a pressure on you to accept any fights that you get and not yeah. back out of them. And if you back out, you worry about what people might think about why you backed out and like stuff like that. And I definitely got caught up in that. Luckily, there was no fight. Um, so I started to really think about it. And then one day I got head kicked in training and I felt like rocked, which is kind of like if you get hit. Uh, it's not like getting knocked out, but you feel like, like maybe you fell or maybe you like um, feel like your head is feeling very weird. Mm. And that's kind of the moment where I was like, what am I doing? Because that really showed me, I cannot control this. Like if I'm going to do this sport, I'm going to keep getting hit in the head. And right. I know that I have, even though I'm not telling people, I know that I have something wrong with me. So that is affecting how I train, how I spar, and it was one of those silly times when I was sparring with someone that was going, that always went way too hard, and you ask them to stop throwing hard head kicks, and they're like, okay, yeah, and then they do it again, and um, instead of being like, you know what, um, I'm just gonna, we're gonna stop sparring, which is the mature thing that you should do, and what I normally did 
I, I took the approach of like, okay, you're going to go hard? I'll go hard. <laughs> um, and me feeling like, okay, yeah, um, I'm better than you. So you're not going to, like, if that's how you want to play. But that is a very, very silly way of approaching things because striking is always very much like, even if you're more skilled, you're always risking getting hit. Like, just because the person is less skilled than you doesn't mean they're not going to land a shot on you. Right. And that's what happened is she landed a head kick and I felt um, I felt something from that. And it really just made me feel like look at everything I was doing as very um, silly. You're right. That's a really mature decision. And that's one um, that I think a lot of people who play sports wrestle with often. And, you know, if you look at like the psychology behind it, people generally like humans don't typically behave in a way that is going to hurt them. Yeah. You know, we're not wired to do that, yeah. right? Uh, the exceptions are our athletes mm-hmm. and, you know, like military personnel yeah. who, who do so for competitive or, uh, you know, maybe altruistic reasons. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that, that you describe mm-hmm. it that way because, you know, we see this. We see this with athletic populations. And that's, um, like you said, there's always going to be an inherent risk. Yeah. And... You know, when when you make that decision to say, okay, like this is a risk that I'm not willing to take, and I can step away. That's that's huge. So I can only imagine. Like I recently retired from playing rugby too for for similar reasons. And when we look at retiring from sport, there there's an, an article uh, that I wanted to bring up. It's published in the Psychology of Sport and Exercise. This was an academic journal, and it looked at the effects of athletic and sort of non-athletic factors on uh, one's retirement from sport, or as they describe in the article, uh, the sports career termination process, because everything has to sound fancier than what it really is. Um, And so some of the factors that they found uh, were the voluntariness or, or how voluntary uh, that that termination or retirement from sport was so uh, in this sense it was they I think they defined it as, as like a perceived control so how much control that you would have over engaging in that so like you said you made the decision to um, step away from from MMA as well as athletes subjective evaluation of their achievements so again this goes to what you're talking about with the number of wins and and how how able you are to sell you as a fighter and, and the money and stuff like that athletic identity which is how how much you as an athlete is part of who you are as a person mm-hmm. um, and that that's one that I think is, is really really interesting you know I have this conversation all the time and with friends who who play competitive sports and and through their experiences transitioning to retirement, and they, they vary, but, but those who did as a result of injury typically have had a much, I want to say, much more rough time uh, finding what's next for them. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that it was your decision to end? It started, my decision to stop fighting started as something that wasn't a choice. So it started, like the initial um, seed in my mind was someone telling me your brain is damaged and you're going to keep damaging it so you should stop but after that there was that there was that looming over me for a while and then one day my coach Oliver who I had been training with for like a year and was like the best coach I ever had in terms of like making me better skill wise but also caring about me as an individual mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just like a potential a future 
moneymaker that could bring your gem fame because right. like they're fighting for you. And as a fighter, you see like you feel that from coaches that like like for for example Spencer when he he found out who his friends were very quickly when he got injured because right. everyone that was his friend before wasn't anymore when he was no longer Spencer Efford, like, mm. the next up-and-coming Toronto, like, UFC fighter. Um, and that, that can be very, very hard for people because they think that they have um, people really on their side, and then they find out that it's it's not the case and that it's way more um, superficial of a relationship. Mm. Anyways, my coach, Oliver, he has always like cared about me as a person before me as an athlete. And around this time when I was thinking about all of this, he asked he asked me to bring homework back for him next time. And he made me answer the question, why do you want to be an MMA fighter? A very, very simple question, something you would think that I had given a lot of thought to. But I hadn't really, because it really did seem like it was that what I was talking about before, like it's just this process that suddenly evolved on me almost like okay now you're a fighter now what are you fighting and now like what you're gonna like give it up or do something else no 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 like this is what you're doing you didn't pay attention in university anyways um so he asked me that and i wrote out this like two long two page long answer and what he said to me when i handed it to him was what i got from what you wrote was that you want to be an mma fighter because you think it will be the thing to make you rich and famous and I hadn't even really considered it like that before. But I really started to, to think about that and to really, really think about what my motivations were for wanting to be an MMA fighter. And it really did come down to those kinds of things. Like, okay, number one, this is the thing that makes me feel significant in the world. I think that's something that is such a primal need for people mm-hmm. to feel significant to another person, to the world, to feel like just significant. And that was what fighting did for me. It gave me this identity of like, I'm Gemma, the the big Toronto MMA fighter that everyone like wants at their gym and that like I'm I'm going somewhere. And on the and, podcast. Yeah, and on the podcast <laughs> and like just you know, that that feels so cool, especially as like a, a teenager. Yeah. Um yeah, so yeah, that and then also thinking like, okay, this is the thing. Like, how lucky am I that I found something that I really truly believe is a viable way to make me like very rich and very famous. And I was looking at Ronda Rousey like, this is what I'm going to have. Like, in my head, I had no doubt. And I still honestly have no doubt that I would have achieved that. Um, it was never the feeling of like, I don't think I'm going to make it. It was, I know I'm going to make it, but do I want to make it? Um, and then... So I thought about that. And then I thought about, okay, if that's why I'm doing it, what are the costs of doing it? We already talked about the health costs, and that's a really big thing because it's mainly only you that goes through all of the um, consequences of MMA. So like people are there for you um, when you're doing good. Like you have millions of fans that cheer you on and like, like all your Instagram photos or whatever. But when you get knocked out on the UFC stage and everyone is like, ah, like I knew she was like a terrible striker or like, and, uh, and I, I'm thinking of like Rhonda. No, like no disrespect to Rhonda. I, I really, really, really respect Rhonda. Um, 
But when I saw what she went through when she got knocked out, it it was like I can imagine that being extremely hard. And even like people were making fun of her for saying that after that she even felt like suicidal. So much in her life changed when she lost and realized how I, I'm I'm making an assumption here, but from what how I'm judging it, she realized that like maybe she wasn't maybe her MMA fighting wasn't as significant as she thought it would be in the grand scheme of things. And um, I started to think about it like that. Like, when I, MMA seems so big to me, like, it seems like such a big deal because everyone around me makes it seem like I'm such a big deal. But really, when I zoom out and look at how it is actually a big deal, it, I couldn't see anything. Like, I couldn't see how it impacted anyone except for me, how it helped anyone, how it really even inspired. And people always say, like, oh, you're such an inspiration, but, like, as an MMA fighter. But honestly, if the only inspiration to me was to encourage other girls to get into MMA, knowing what I know about, like, the dangers of the sport, it, even that didn't really mean anything to me. Mm. So it didn't, fighting didn't really line up with my values at the time. And I started to think about, like, what other things in life that I wanted. And I definitely want, like, a family, and I want to be, I want to, like, have a, a strong relationship, and I want to have kids one day, and I want to be a good family member to my, like, brother and my parents and all these people. And these are all the people that would suffer the most if I was, um, like, if I continued to do this and I got really, really hurt, like Spencer. Mm. It's only Spencer, the people that, sp that actually love Spencer that suffer. Not the uh, hundreds of people who, you know, wanted photos with him at the end of his fights. At the end of the day, those people don't mean anything. Like, you could have um, millions of followers, but what do they really mean to your life and it's when i looked at it like that um i actually kind of thought i didn't even want to be an mma fighter anymore so even that without the injury part um convinced me to stop fighting so it, it, it was kind of this is a long way of getting back to your question of like it didn't feel like it was out of my control at first it did and then it really made me start thinking about like why do I even want this right. is it just because this is what every everyone expects of me or is it because this is the lifestyle that I actually really want and when I really thought about it it wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted and it became more of a choice and not like a fate and I think probably that was beneficial for my my mentality it sounds like you had an amazing coach posing that question to you yeah. how'd you transition from what it sounds like at least it had you transition from from a world of mma to rooting yourself in your values and your identity and your values instead of in the sport yeah and it allowed you to say i'm still me for all these reasons even without the sport yeah and that's a powerful thing to to have a young person do so you you had a good go yeah honestly like <laughs> And he also set me up, and he was training me for free. So he didn't have his own gym. He was just an MMA coach that gyms hired to go and teach stuff there. But he saw so much potential in me, and he liked me as a person. So he started training me for free. Mm -hmm. So I'd bust to his house, and like he'd give me, um, he'd train me one-on-one -on -one for free. He'd even bust out to um, my gyms to watch me spar. He'd give me this homework. He'd like talk to me and like t tell me what to watch to study on my own. Um, he, he set me up with a conditioning trainer as well. And she also offered me all of that for free because they were so close. And he said, he asked her if she could do that. So he, he had done so much for me. 
Um, and he was really the only person that I was very, I really didn't want to tell that I was quitting fighting because mm-hmm. he had done so much just because he believed in me and I knew that it was from a very genuine place and not like a, I don't know, a self, it wasn't from a selfish place. Um, but when I told him, he was happy that I did that. He was happy that I stopped fighting. And he said that if you're not 100% sure that you want to be a fighter, you should not be doing it. And I don't want you to do it if you're even having doubts about it. Because fighting is not something you can have one foot in and one foot out. You're already going to get injured in fighting. But if your head isn't 100% in it, you definitely will get injured (laughs) really bad in fighting. And that was it. He said he was really really he was happy for me for quitting um he's still an incredible friend and he like helps he helps me still to this day i in fact i'm training with him tonight like he's still in my life whereas a lot of my other coaches are not that i had are not and after i told them i wasn't i don't i haven't heard from them really so that relationship was really really important and and very very meaningful to me so i'm very very lucky i had him um i think this is a good segue i guess into your work uh with uh, girls who fight mm-hmm. given that you are now essentially a coach yeah <laughs> so do you, do you find you take some of the values that he demonstrated and yeah uh, into your own practice yeah uh, absolutely for so i've i've worked with so many coaches at this point and you get to kind of like pick and choose what coaching styles you like from oliver uh there is a lot that i follow so not only do I teach my striking stuff the way that he taught me striking stuff, like m- mechanics and how to teach it, like where to start and like how to build from there. Uh, I take a lot of what he has taught me and I teach that. So he's given me a lot that way. But also in terms of the style of coaching, I really liked his style of coaching because he was not the kind of person to, he doesn't tell you you're doing good unless you're doing good. He's not just handing out like a ton of comp. Yeah, like you're amazing, perfect, awesome. Like he's not he's not that cheerleader. He's the guy that. Are there many of those cheerleaders in (laughs) in MMA? Honestly, a lot. There's not that many coaches that are over the top like that, but there are some, Mm -hmm. and there are some that are even more extreme the other side, like people that are almost like they like put you down almost as of their form of trying to build you up but that's not to that extreme I don't I don't really click with that either but Oliver's I really like because he always I always had to be and wanted to be on my best behavior mm-hmm. I wanted to be the first person um with their gear on to go and Oliver had a very good way of encouraging you to do your best by only um kind of rewarding you when you were truly doing your best. Like you can't, you can't get away with stuff. He will, he'll know if you're kind of fooling around or not doing your best or not giving your best effort. And that is the same coaching style I take with my girls. Mm -hmm. And I think that has, has played a really, a really, really big role in, in the success of my whole program, because it's not just about, they're not with me because I'm teaching them MMA like they 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 are that's why they come but the reason they stay is because they are having so much fun and they're getting something mentally out of it that they don't get anywhere else which is having part partly not all but 
partly I really think it's because they have somebody who's hired holding them to a very, very high and tough standard. And I honestly don't think girls have that a lot of places these days. Mm. Everyone is, everything is about female empowerment and that's good, that's fine. Um, but sometimes it has the effect of leading people to just empty, empty compliments, empty encouragement. You're always perfect. You're always amazing. You're always great. No need to improve. You're perfect the way you are. But I feel like that mindset isn't always very helpful for people, especially young people who are not perfect. They, no one, no one is perfect. Like there's always room to improve. And if you don't have people who are being real in your corner with you about that, and telling you how you can improve and that you trust them that they are telling you to improve because of a genuine care for your betterment. I feel like that is very, very valuable. And girls aren't getting that at school where they're getting just empty encouragement all the time. And when they come to my classes, they know if they're not giving their full effort, if they're leaving their hands down, if they're talking when I'm talking, if they're just fooling around, they're not gonna have me being like, oh, good job, like you're great. Um, I will hold them to a high standard. And what's great about that is they all rise to meet it. So I, I don't ever have to even discipline them at this point in terms of like, um, so like, am I speaking right now? When I'm speaking, you're not speaking. I don't have to do stuff like that because it's created this whole culture of like, everyone is holding everyone to a high standard. So they don't want the partner they're working with to get caught having their hands down and, and goofing off. They're encouraging the best from each other. And so I think that's really powerful. Do you want to give, I guess, an overview of what Girls Who Fight is? Yeah, uh, Girls Who Fight is a mixed martial arts and self-defense program for girls and women. So I do, there's kind of two segments. One is the programs that I offer that people can sign up for. And the other is companies and organizations that hire me to go and teach workshops at their company. So both are both are fun, but I definitely have way more fun teaching my own students who I see every week and they're yeah, like obsessed yeah. with girls who fight and like <laughs> wear their shirts on the first day of school and like write essays about me and like tell me every detail about what happened at school that day. Like that is definitely where I feel I get the most personal reward from. So my programs are it started with summer camps and I still do summer camps. So the initial idea of Girls Who Fight was a summer camp program where girls could learn an intensive mixed martial arts and self-defense curriculum in one week. And I thought that'd be really cool because there's nothing like that. If I were to do it, it would be the only one. I didn't know if it would there would be a market for it, but I knew that if there was, I would be the person that could make it succeed. Like I was sure about that because of my experience, um, because of my position as like a young female. Uh, I just like felt that it was right. So in 2017, before I even had the company or anything, I was like, okay, let me test this out. I started messaging parents that I knew had daughters and was like, I'm gonna do like an MA summer camp. Can your daughter come? And a bunch of people said no. <laughs> and like five people said yes. And I went to the library and I printed off like black and white last minute like word, like a, a flyer that I made on word and like started hand walking up to parents and being like, you should come to this camp that I just started last week. <laughs> and one girl uh, came from that. And to this day, she is like one of the most dedicated Girls Who Fight students. Her name is Mila, if she's listening. 
um, which she definitely will. <laughs> um, anyways, I got five girls in that first camp, and that was the first ever Girls Who Fight program. Doing it, I realized that there was something there. Um, just how much the girls liked it. There was just something special about it. So after that, um, going throughout the fall, I started working on like the business stuff. So I started developing the website. I started um, like learning about what it takes to make something happen. Like what about advertising? And what about like get money? And how do I price things? And that like I had to learn all of that stuff because I had no experience doing any kind of business stuff. So I started doing that and then six months later I incorporated the company Girls Who Fight, did another summer of summer camps, and then decided to do weekly classes. So the summer camps right now are, um, they're really cool because they're, it's like a one-week intensive uh, self-defense technique from mixed martial arts course, and they're learning like some striking, some wrestling, some jujitsu, self-defense, uh, basic techniques, but they're also learning, so I, I thought like, okay, if I have them for five hours, I can't just like drill them into <laughs> until they are passing out from MMA like that's that can't that's not gonna happen so what else am I gonna do and I started thinking about the other things that kind of like complemented what I was doing and I decided on working with them on how to present themselves confidently so how do you stand confidently how do you walk confidently why do those things matter um how to be assertive with your voice so how if you're if you need to stand up for yourself or if you need to assert your boundaries or something how do you do it? Do you do it like this? I mean, are you apologetic about it? Is everything a question at the end? <laughs> like, do you do it like that? Or do you say, uh, get out of my way? I'm not okay with this. Like, do you look someone in the eye or do you look at your feet? And these are things that I noticed through teaching that a lot of girls really struggled with mm -hmm. is they have a lot of trouble being able to flip the switch from regular everyday girl voice to... I need to make a serious statement that needs to be followed. And I started working with them on how they could do that. How can you speak assertively? And if you need to stand up for yourself, how do you physically do it? And um, that ended up being a really, really important component of these summer camps because parents really want that. Like they want their kids to be able to stand up for themselves. And it's also a big preventative um, portion of self-defense. So like you're learning the self-defense stuff and that's good, but there's so much data and so much research that talks about how bullies choose victims. And honestly, a lot of that comes down to the presentation of the people. And there's people that that's kind of like a controversial thing because people will hear that and think like, Oh, well, isn't that like victim blaming? And it, it shouldn't have to be that way, but what it does do for us is give us power to understand how we can better prepare ourselves for these kinds of things like dealing with bullies does your walk say that you are going to fight back or does it say that you are just going to let me push you and run away honestly i have never even though i said it is kind of controversial i've never had a parent no parent has come to me being like i don't want you to teach my daughter how to stand up for herself because mm -hmm. she shouldn't have to learn it as a parent i feel like you're just way too concerned about your kid's safety that you're not I don't know, moralize like that. You just, like, at the end of the day, you want your kid to be able to stand up for themselves. Not just for self-defense, but, like, when they start, like, dating and they're with guys that they even like, and but they maybe they do something they're not comfortable with and they have to say, oh, actually, like, I, I'm not comfortable with that. Or when they get a job and they want to ask for a promotion 
or everyday things that has to do with making you more successful, that comes down to being able to ask for what you want and having the confidence to say what you want and what you don't want and say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. So it's not just self-defense that all of these skills helps. And every parent that comes to me understand as soon as I like explain that in a second, I, I, I don't even have to explain it. They just know it. Um, anyways, sorry to go on a, a rant about that. But so those are the summer camps. The weekly classes, I teach MMA. So they're learning not just self-defense stuff. They're learning kickboxing, wrestling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in terms of safety. I don't do any striking sparring. So the girls are never facing off each other and like sparring with hitting or like hitting each other in the head. They are they are wrestling and doing jujitsu live though. So they're going against each other on the ground. Um, there's never been any injuries. We keep it very like controlled. I mean, you made some great points in terms of the language that could be used around it or how some parents might perceive mm-hmm. it and the victim blaming. And it's, I mean, we are in a time where it's a, it's a process and we can't just expect people to all of a sudden treat everyone as we should be treated. Yeah. And so we do have to do some proactive measures. Yeah. And like you said, it's not victim blaming, but it's moving towards, moving towards a goal together. And it's, yeah. it's a process. Yeah. And in, in doing that, uh, some, some might say like, can you do this without MMA? But I'd love to hear from your experience, how you feel not only that it complements it, but the, the power that comes from combining those two things from having um, coaching girls through MMA and the power that that brings to... I've had a couple, only a few parents that say, oh, I don't want my daughter to learn, like, make sure she only learns defensive moves, no (laughs) offensive moves. And that's when I kind of roll my eyes. Like, do you really think she's never going to have to use an offensive move? Like, really? Like, you're preparing her to defend herself. You think the person, once she does her wrist escape grab, they're just going to be like, oh. Oh, we're done here. (laughs) Okay. Never mind. Like, what if those stuff, what if it's not enough? What if she, to defend herself, she actually has to use force? You're not going to be okay with that? Like, anyways, that's, there's a lot of mindsets surrounding this stuff that are frustrating. The first thing I would say to a parent who has an issue with the mixed martial arts, the aggression aspect, the, the uh, violence aspect, the first thing I say is, well, learning MMA provides your child with less violent options than they would be left with if they didn't know MMA. If someone was attacked and they didn't know how to take the person down, hold them in the position while I call for help in a position where they cannot hurt me and I'm in control, and even if I needed to, say for whatever reason I needed to stop that person, say that they were trying to drag me into a house and I was like, I need to stop this now, I would be able to choke them unconscious, have them... um, like be unconscious for 10, 15 seconds, no harm done to their body, they're going to wake up and in that 50 seconds I can stand up and run and call the police. Say a person didn't know how to do that, what would they be left with? They would have, okay, what weapons do I have nearby? Is there a knife that I can stab someone with? Is there um, a pen that I can stab someone with? Like, is there a gun? Is there, like, how can I use my fingers to like pry out your eyes? That, those are literally the options that you're giving someone if they do not know martial arts. That is my first argument. Usually at that point, parents are like, oh, okay, yeah, that actually makes sense. Because a lot of the stuff in mixed martial arts, even though like when people see MMA, 
they think it's like very, very, very violent and like bloody. But that's like the sport of MMA. Mm. For me to defend myself, it would be very quick. Like the kind of what I just explained, that would be a lot less violent than me having to look for something to stab somebody with. Um, and, and actually, women statistically are not willing to do those things anyways. The other thing that I would tell them is that people who understand martial arts are much less likely to get into fights with people. And you see this with the, this is, this is just kind of like a known phenomena, phenomenon, like people who understand their own capacity for aggression um, have learned to control it. And that's what happens when you do martial arts. You learn how capable you are of causing serious damage to people but you learn how to completely control it so that you don't ever have to use it. Um, and the other, the other thing that I like to say is, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. At the end of the day, if you invest money and time into your daughter learning how to fight, and she never has, to, she will probably never have to use it, but it will have the effect of making her see herself as very competent, very capable, um, very strong, able to handle handle herself and in the chance that she ever does have to use it she will know what to do yeah i see that you know with martial arts and and what you're talking about there around self-control it, it'll it'll it gives them a chance to to be comfortable with their emotions mm -hmm. you, things like anger and fear those, those aren't you can't just not feel them yeah uh and so having like you said that the ability to control that or to use that to an advantage if uh, you're in a bad situation, for example, and learn how to be, how to act, right? When, yeah. when that, when those feelings occur, you know, we, we think of things like anger as, as negative, but, but that doesn't mean they don't serve a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And just on what you were, you were talking about, there's, yeah, there's an immense amount of research around the impact of mixed martial arts or martial arts in general, traditional sense, non-traditional sense, more modern modern types, and its impact on confidence, uh, lowering aggression, all sorts of mm -hmm. wildly positive impacts on, on youth, mm -hmm. which you've explained many of it, you've seen in all the girls that you work mm -hmm. with. What, in, in building your programs, you could imagine what you might want an outcome to be, but mm -hmm. have there been outcomes that you didn't anticipate that you've seen in the girls that you've worked with? Or anything that's been a big surprise for you? I, I would say there are things that I wasn't anticipating, but they're not surprising. Mm. So I hear from parents and from kids that there are changes at school and at home as well in terms of like how they talk and like <laughs> um, command themselves. But what I can see is a big difference in girls' assertiveness and like saying what they actually think. So when kids start with me, often, when, when, en when anyone tries something new, they're often much more shy than when they've been doing it. Like when I walked into my first gym, it wasn't the same way I walk into my gym now. Um, and that's very normal. Um, but that's what I see is like when girls start, they do things like this. If I ask a question, they won't put their hands up to say, if I say, would you rather do wrestling or kickboxing right now? They'll kind of look around the room and like wait to see what everyone else is putting and, and then they'll put their hand up to, to be like everyone else. Or if we're lining up for the warm up, they'll put themselves at the back of the line, not at the front. Or if we, if I'm asking people to find a partner, they'll kind of like stand passively around and 
wait for someone to come to them. But after a couple weeks, those behaviors really change. But that's also because I, that's what I tell them, like, and encourage them to do. So they'll do things like, as soon as they get to class, they'll go to the front of the line, not the back. Um, if I ask what they want to do, if someone isn't like, if no one's saying, I'll be like, come on, like, you know what you want to do. There's nothing wrong with saying what you want. And they'll start putting their hand up for, okay, I want to do, what do you guys want to do? I want to do arm bars. I want to do like uh, punching. And even if other people disagree, they'll start saying what they really, really want. Mm. Um, or if I ask them to find a partner, when girls at first come and they're, oh, I don't have a partner. Well, it's, it's up to you to, when I say find a new partner, you walk up to somebody and say, you're my partner now, or do you want to be my partner? Um, those kinds of behaviors I feel like are very important on a deep level because it's telling them that it's okay to um, put yourself first. And I feel like a lot of girls, what the behavior that I see is like, the default is yielding to someone else. Oh, oh, do you want to go first? Oh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Like, do you, oh, should, should I go? Do you want to go? That kind of like, I'm trying to be nice, so I'm going to put myself behind you. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a place for that. That's okay. And if that, that, that's who you are, that's fine. But I think girls also need to know it's okay to put yourself first. Like, it's okay to walk up to something and put yourself in front of the line. And when somebody says go, it's okay to be the first one to go. Or it's okay to walk up to somebody and eagerly say, do you want to be my partner? It's okay when I ask what you want to do and everyone else says they want to do jujitsu and you say, no, I want to do kickboxing. Like, it's okay to disagree with people um, and really ask for what you want. And I really think asking for what you want is one of the things that's helped me the most. Like, when I really started doing that on a very genuine and, like, consistent uh, basis, I started getting what I want so much more than I did before. And that's something that I... Uh, verbalize with my kids all the time and it that changes like within a month kids who were very passive become like very outgoing in in that sense and that is probably my favorite thing to see wow wow (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) I'm 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 only a little bit speechless because while I'm sitting here I'm like yeah, yeah, I should do this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like a grown woman and, and and learning definitely learning from you. So I can only imagine uh. what what the girls are, are soaking up by being with you on a weekly basis yeah. or being in your camps. It's yeah. Your your passion for the subject shows. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. It's that's good. Um yeah, so I guess one one question I had, you know, we see when sports are developing such as UFC around MMA and and stuff like that, when it becomes mainstream, I guess, one of the key pieces of that is having a robust and and well-managed youth development program. And so we see that, you know, with hockey and and rugby and football and and all of that, um, where they have, like, specific age grades and and whatnot. And I'm just wondering, is, is, is there something like that with MMA? What age do you think it's appropriate for kids to start training, maybe start competing? Mm-hmm. Uh, in other sports, you know, other sports use age cutoffs for things like contact, yeah, uh, like rugby and hockey. But that, you know, given that contact is the inherent focus. Yeah, I think that. So for learning martial arts, I don't know if there's like an age that's too young. That's very different from competing or mm-hmm. contact, though. So. When kids, when there, there's some programs that have like jujitsu or, or kickboxing for kids that are like four to eight. 
Um, but they're not going and learning really like fighting each other. They're learning, it's like they learn warm up moves. They learn how to like run and do obstacle courses. They learn how to have discipline and they learn about like respect for the coaches. They learn, they're learning a lot of like fundamental foundation blocks for for yeah. the next age group, I, th- I think. Um, they also do learn like some basic techniques, but it's not, it's not really like they're learning how to go in and have a fight for right. comp. So I think those things can still be learned. They're not going to be getting the same training that like a 10 year old would because um, they don't have the attention span for it or like yeah. the, they're just too, <laughs> too, too little. Yeah. Um, but for contact, I really don't think, I don't like to see kids in competitions. Um, especially after all the stuff with the brain brain damage mm-hmm. like i have been to a couple of competitions where like uh striking fights where you see like 12 year olds get in the ring and their parents or their coaches are like yelling at them to like hit harder and like they're hitting each other so hard and like you can see kids like they start backing up and covering their head and the other kid and mm-hmm. it's just i don't th- i don't agree with that personally um I just don't think there's any way that those kids are aware of what they're risking. I think that's negligent on the parents and coaches' part. And, like, if you're 12, it's kind of like how 12-year-olds can't have consent for other things. that They're not fully capable of understanding all the risks of. If your parents and your whole gym and everything, everyone is telling you that you should go and do this fight, you're going to do it. Um, even adults don't, as, as we said, they don't, ha- they don't learn about the consequences. So I, I don't really like that. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I guess a, a follow-up or extension from that then is, you know, you have a girl in one of your programs come up to you and say, hey, I want to compete. Mm-hmm. You know, what would your response Oof. be if they were, say, 12, yeah. 16, 20? I would say to them right now that they can start competing in jujitsu because jujitsu is very, like, kids' jujitsu competitions, I think, are fine not striking competitions because in jujitsu you're not really getting like seriously hurt you're every sport you do you're risking an injury so like if you do soccer you can risk a concussion if you do any sport you can risk um any kind of bodily injury so i would be okay with that but i wouldn't want i wouldn't want them to compete in striking uh if they really really did i would probably talk to Oliver <laughs> and I'd be like Oliver what should I do um but they would they would need way more training than they're getting just from me at right. that point because right. like my classes are not geared to building fighters that go in a ring and like win because um, they're not even doing sparring so they'd have to go some they'd have to start training with another gym I think like I don't think any of them would like leave girls who fight to train with another gym but they'd have I'd have to be like okay if you're gonna do this you need more than me and this gym but yeah, I haven't faced that yet. So to just be almost, you know, out of the scope of your practice because that's not what you want your program to be. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's not the focus. Um, but because I care about my students so much and like I I genuinely like love each of them mm-hmm. and I want like I do not want to see any any bad any harm come to them. I would want them to have a better option than myself to help prepare them for that. You know, we see this in all sports. It's not, you know, exclusive to MMA or, or hockey or whatever. Um, but there's a huge push right now to to improve player safety or mm-hmm. athlete safety. There's a big difficulty 
uh, particularly with contact and combat sports, is finding a balance between keeping things safe and keeping things competitive. Yeah. You know, so I'm just curious if, if you can think of any, any measures or something that could be implemented that would be able to find that balance with, with something like MMA, or, or is it at all possible, or is it just, you know, the, there's just always going to be an extreme inherent risk to this sport? I think you can find ways to limit the risks. Like, for instance, my approach has limited the risks, but I've also limited them from sparring, which can be very beneficial for some people and very fun for people because they're going and, and testing the skills that they're learning in a real situation. And that has benefits on its own. For me, I've taken, I've decided for the program, it's more important for me to, to err on the side of safety than the benefits of sparring. Um, at least for now, that's my decision. However, there is enough in terms of, like for jujitsu and grappling, I'll err on the side of competition because the safety risk isn't that, that threatening. Um, so that, that's been my approach. Some other gyms, they can implement certain practices for sparring. Like what I said about the, it's called slap sparring, which is like, it sounds worse because you're not wearing gloves, but everyone hits way, way lighter and you're not landing. Like it's kind of it's right. like open palm, like kind of like, okay, I would, I would have just like landed a jab, but I, but I did it. Yeah. Um, and you're still doing leg kicks and body kicks and stuff, but you're not like getting like really hard hits to the head. Well, we see that, you know, with boxing before they implemented boxing gloves, mm-hmm. there was so fewer hits to the head because mm-hmm. if you hit somebody in the teeth, you're going to, your hands are just going to be a mess. Yeah. So and then all of a sudden they have these big padded gloves on and, yeah. and that, that changed. Yeah. Right? So yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and so, so a lot of what you're getting at, and I guess this kind of goes back to the fact that you said most injuries happen in practice. Yeah. So it's just limiting risk in practice. Yeah, that, that could do a lot. And if you're, if your team is good and like the coat, the, the leaders, in the gym are concerned and setting a priority for brain health, that will trickle down. But there are so many gyms that it's the opposite. The leaders are the ones who have the mindset of like, you gotta train hard, you gotta be tough, you don't quit. Like if you get hit, you hit them back. Like there's not, the, so this is, this is like just my, my opinion. Like there's yeah. lots of people who would totally disagree with me and say, no, if you wanna be a fighter or whatever, you have to spar hard all the time. Um, but again, my approach isn't really anymore for like what you need to be a fighter, but how can you practice the martial art in a way where you're gaining all of the appropriate skills, like the soft and hard skills, and, and also limiting the risk you're exposing yourself to. I think the gym culture is important because the, the students will always mimic the coaches. So if the coaches are, are, are reckless with how they do sparring, then the students will be as well. I've seen it so many times. You've been in in light of uh, in safety and the extreme risks that can come with being in a fight. Mm-hmm. You've been quoted saying that you had never taught before, but and I quote, uh, but I figured nothing could be as scary as stepping into the cage. Have you since experienced anything that's been scarier than stepping into the cage? Um, I don't. Nothing that's in the same way yeah nothing like in the way that fighting is scary nothing else is scary I think that going through that really 
has the effect of your mind knowing that it is capable of some serious some serious stuff so like it's just a it's a powerful thing because you when you look at when you go through other things your um standard for what is scary is so much higher mm-hmm. than other people's so it does make you braver in the real world i think for me i don't know if i've encountered anything that is scary in the same way that it is scary you it, and it's it's interesting hearing you talk about your experience as a fighter but for so many people it like it almost seems as though the scarier thing for a lot of other people would be the transition that you made away from something that had been your life your community mm-hmm. your identity there's so many people right now that are living that it might not necessarily be a fighter but could yeah. be in a job they don't like or could be a student that's trying to whether it's change sport or change identity or who they perceive themselves to be or who others perceive them to be and are trying to find that truth and I guess with that is what would you give as advice to somebody who might be listening that's in that place that has to looking to move more towards their truth or maybe move away from something that they're in and making that very scary transition one that you did incredibly and and what's brought us here today the first thing that comes to my mind is what made the difference for me was when Oliver asked me to define why I was doing what I was doing that made a lot of things very clear to me. I, I don't, it seems like something everyone should know, but really people don't actually ask themselves on a, on a deep, serious, and thoughtful level of analyzing what your motives are for doing what you're doing. There is a consequence for every decision that you make, but if you don't make a decision, that's also gonna have a consequence. Just from my experience, if you can really think and even for me writing things out, like even writing lists of like pros, cons of like different avenues that I would take. Things are very complicated, like adult life is complicated, <laughs> but um, at the same time, like nothing worth doing is easy. And it's almost like in, in your experience where you realize that it was maybe fame and, and money and everything that kind of came with that, you know, you identified that that wasn't a good enough reason but someone else might find that as a good yeah, enough reason exactly right that doesn't make it a bad reason no. it could be a very enlightening thing and and it could drive you to further your performance uh, in whatever you're doing too yeah, yeah. i think at, at least know your reasons yeah but yeah like like you said for me it what i saw from fighting wasn't worth it but for lots of people it is so like i, I don't mean any like i don't mean to um like tread on other people's values for why they want to be MMA fighters. But for me, when I looked at my values, it wasn't the thing that I could dedicate myself to fulfill them. Probably like worth worth mentioning too that in the story that you shared, it wasn't today I finish MMA fighting, tomorrow I now have Girls Who Fight Incorporated. Mm-hmm. There was a huge process yeah. along the way and it, it sounded, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like it just started with I'm going to just try this one thing this summer. I'm going to yeah. just put this, this is something I'm doing on the side. I'm just going to try it out. And yeah. that, and that's, I think that's a, a huge, a huge step. It might seem like a small one, but for somebody who's thinking of making a change to yeah, just try a little bit of exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like big. Like I, I had a feeling that I, I was onto something and I knew enough that like fail, like failures in the beginning were not indicative of, meaning that it wasn't ever going to work. 
and there's just so many mistakes you make throughout doing any kind of business or pursuit, like any athletic pursuit, and you learn along the way. But I think what you said, like just starting, like I, I just started by like messaging parents mm-hmm. to be like, would your daughter want to do this? And some said yes, some said no, but like I ended up getting that first little thing going and from there it's like slowly built. It was not like an overnight thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For girls who fight as it exists now, mm-hmm. it's incredible and huge and if you're a girl or a parent or a friend of somebody who wants to get involved, what's how do you get involved? Well, we have programs in three locations. One is Davisville, so Midtown Toronto, Scarborough and Markham. Those are the locations I'm like operating out of right now. So if anyone wanted to get involved in either camps or classes or basic workshops or private lessons or whatever, they would just go to my website, which is girlsyouthfight.ca, and look at the course options, sign up, <laughs> come to a free <laughs> trial. Um, or if you have like a university or a company or something, that people that bring me in to do stuff like talks or workshops, then they would also just go to my website. Uh, our Instagram also is very, I'm like very proud of our Instagram because parents always come and tell me, they're like, you know, the Instagram is so good because it shows exactly what you guys are doing in class. So people, people who don't know MMA, it's like they don't understand it at all. They don't know if it's going to be like super violent or like what sports are you even learning? Is it even practical for self-defense? But when they go and see the videos, mm-hmm. they can see, wow, the kids are really having fun. They're like really working hard and focused so yeah if you want to check out the instagram you'll be able to see exactly what we're about and you'll be able to see a new video yeah (laughs) which is awesome oh my god yeah so even if you know you might not be looking to get involved in the program uh, for those who are listening check out the video it is awesome and it's on your website it's at the top of the website, it's on the Instagram, and it's at the top of the you're... Facebook. The Instagram is girlswhofight underscore T.O. And Facebook. Same thing. Same thing. Yeah, girls who fight T.O. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to come out and join Steph and I. Oh, thank you, you guys. Yeah. So this is very, very fun. I love getting the chance to like articulate my ideas, and this is just great, great opportunities for me. So thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Athletic Perspective Podcast. Check us out online via our website, athleticperspective.com. Again, that's athleticperspective, all one word, dot com. Or on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, whatever you prefer. We have some great guests, some great content lined up, so stay tuned for more.